Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Monday, February 19th, day 136 of the war with Hamas. Amanda Borshel Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Laser Behrman. Hi, Laser. Good morning. Twice in the past few days, Laser has attended speeches by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We'll hear if his messaging was different in Hebrew and in English. Israel is livid as Brazil's president compares Israel's actions in the war in Gaza with the Holocaust. Moscow is set to host a peace summit between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. What does this signify? And Laser will weigh in on Israel's readiness or not for a war in the north. All this and much, much more when we're back. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet. But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Last night, our Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke in front of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations in Jerusalem. And on Saturday night, Laser also attended a press conference in Jerusalem with the Prime Minister. So I was wondering, how is the messaging the same or different between these two forums? I'd say mostly it's been consistent. Uh, Netanyahu, as he has throughout the war, continues to insist, continues to stress that Israel will not stop until there's total victory, total victory being, now there's three elements to it. One, taking apart Hamas's political and civil governance capabilities. Number two, bringing back all the hostages. Number three, now making sure that Gaza, the Gaza Strip cannot once again serve as a platform for threatening Israelis. He said that throughout. Uh, the focus on that briefing on Saturday night um, was similar to what we heard, what I heard last night at the Conference of Presidents, in that he spoke about the fact that there would be no two-state solution imposed from the outside. He said that even more explicitly, even more strongly last night, because it came after this uh, unanimous decision or declaration by the full cabinet that there, that Israel would not accede to any international diktats from abroad. Um, that was a reference to reports that the United States is perhaps considering uh, unilateral recognition of a state of Palestine as part of its grand vision of normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia and some sort of solution to this war with Hamas. Um, Netanyahu also said last night something interesting. He called not for pressure directly on Hamas, but pressure on Qatar 
to pressure Hamas, trying to put more uh, emphasis on their role, their problematic role at times, that he seems to be uh, displeased with the role that they have played, but also putting them as the central, uh, most influential mediator in this whole story. Again, Israel has chosen to work with Qatar. It seems like they've been effective, certainly on the first round of hostage releases, and they are continuing to meet with Qatari representatives, uh, did so early last week as well. And of course, Netanyahu was extremely critical of uh, Brazil's president, Lula, who likened Israel's campaign uh, against Hamas to Hitler's Holocaust against the Jews, and he also called it a genocide. That, not surprisingly, was condemned across the board by the foreign minister, Israel Katz, by Netanyahu, by opposition leader, Yair Lapid, who's famously the son of a Holocaust survivor. Um, And actually today, uh, probably as we're speaking, uh, the foreign minister is issuing a very stern reprimand to Brazil's ambassador to Israel. And where is he doing it? At Yad Vashem. I think that's a very, uh, not very subtle, but a very appropriate and wise place to do it. The symbolism there is obvious. So talking about locations of statements, Lula's remarks were made in front of an African Union summit in Addis Ababa. And do you think that this setting actually played into his statements? It's a very good question, actually. Uh, The continent in Africa is kind of split. Israel has, in recent years... Uh, done a, made great strides in terms of returning to the continent. In the 50s and 60s, it was a very important partner to a lot of countries, agricultural technology, military, te- military technology. And Netanyahu has been successful in restoring a lot of those ties. Um, and Israel has that observer status at the African Union, which is under attack from the anti-Israel forces there. Also in Africa, there's forces that are um, that blend of kind of anti-Western, anti-American. Uh, South Africa is a wonderful example, but there's many other as well. Some of them were, were allies of the Soviets um, back during the Cold War. And that is a an anti-Israel bloc in addition to many um, Muslim countries on the continent. So certainly we have friends there. And we have, um, we have, I won't say enemies, but adversaries or, or rivals or people that certainly don't see Israel in a positive light. Um, so it's complex. But at the African Union, um, I'm sure a lot of what he said, of what Brazil's president said, um, was accepted with very sympathetic ears. Um, obviously, a statement that is at best ignorant, but... You know, we know why people say it. It's a blend of, uh, you know, hatred, anti-Semitism to specifically accuse uh, the Jewish state of acting like the Nazis, you know, obviously should be condemned, was condemned, and should continue to be condemned. So another question of location, location, location. The Palestinian Authority is still seeking unity with Hamas and may hold talks with the terror group in Moscow on February 26th. This was said by the Prime Minister Mohammed Shtayat yesterday, and he added that the world needs to stop, quote, focusing on the October 7th massacre. So my question to you is, what do you think is Russia's interest in holding this summit? Absolutely. Whenever you look at Russia's activities in the Middle East, even beyond the Middle East, also in Europe, it is trying to counter U.S. power, U.S. Um, U.S. presence, and that's exactly what this is doing. You know, the U.S. is far more pow- powerful than Russia in the Middle East. It really has always been. There was a time during the Cold War, if you remember, when Russia was the the main sponsor, the main uh, patron of Syria and Egypt. And what allowed Egypt to move over from the Soviet side 
to the uh, American side was Israel's battlefield victory in 1973. Um, and since then, Egypt, the, the most uh, populous and one of the most powerful Arab countries, has been a firm ally of the United States. What Russia would like to do is undermine that presence through Iran, through countries like Syria, and by showing these terrorist organizations as well, like Hamas and Hezbollah, that it is not uh, hostile to them, it is not going to uh, treat them as a terrorist organization, it'll treat them as legitimate players, and hoping that it can show that uh, Russia has the ability to do what the U.S. cannot do. The U.S. is working through its allies to bring out, to bring about a, um, first of all, a common end to this current fighting in the Gaza Strip in some way, and also to pursue its grand vision, which it was working on before the war, of a Saudi-Israel peace, kind of a, a pro-Western uh, bloc going from India through UAE, Saudi, Jordan, Israel, Egypt, uh, Morocco, and, and really having that pro-Western, anti-extremist, uh, anti-Iranian bloc. That's the big American vision. Um, Trump actually did better than the Biden administration starting to create that. The Biden administration really got going in the past couple of years in trying to build on that, but this war got in the way. Um, so that's that's really held it up. But you can see that their focus right now is trying to do some sort of jujitsu flip to take the uh, October 7th in the aftermath and try to make it um, a springboard for, for a quicker and more aggressive pursuit of the pro-American vision. Russia certainly wants to get in the way of that. So basically what you're saying is that Russia is trying to block the Western BLOC block. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's not only Western, it's American, right? The EU is not a, a serious player in the foreign policy world without America. NATO is an American. It's a way for you know America to, to impose its, its will on Europe. Maybe, you know, I could see if Trump gets elected and he and he is much less for, forthcoming with NATO, it'll force the Europeans to really have their take responsibility for their own security and foreign policy. Um, but for now, yeah, it's absolutely a, a, a it's focused on countering America, which Putin and the Russians are obsessed with. Let's go to a short break. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're back. Yesterday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu sided with far-right National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir in endorsing restrictions on Arab Israelis' access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount during Ramadan according to multiple reports. 
But my question for you is, do you see Hamas weaponizing this in terms of its war on public opinion? Meaning Israel here is again putting sanctions on the Arabs. And will Hamas use this in the war for public opinion? Absolutely. They always try to. Uh, you know, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, what was the name of their, the October 7th attack, which they called a military operation, whatever nonsense, called the Al-Aqsa Flood? Right, that they are trying to portray themselves as the defender of the Al-Aqsa Mosque against those evil Jews who are trying to blow up the mosque and, and take it over. Um, we all know that that propaganda, but it is it, Hamas has always has been trying, and they've failed so far to get the West Bank to rise up um, in in parallel with this fighting in Gaza. But if we go back two years ago to 2021, we remember on um, it was Jerusalem Day that March. They fired rockets, and I, th- I believe that that aligned with Ramadan two years ago. They fired rockets into Jerusalem. They started that that round of fighting um, that ended pretty quickly, but they but it included uh, fighting in even within Israel proper in, in mixed cities. That was certainly a worrying um, watershed right there. So they are certainly going to do everything they can. One, like you said, on the inter- international perspective, and also in the Arab world, to portray Israel as these evil, you know, oppressors of Muslims, and also more specifically in the West Bank, in Jer- East Jerusalem, to try to use any anger about any restrictions that are imposed to get um, them to carry out attacks. Uh, that is certainly something Hamas would like to see. You can see the bind that Israel is in. On the one hand. You want to prevent any um, potential for riots on the Temple Mount because once you have to go in with security forces, of course, it looks terrible and and it could even become uh, more inflammatory. On the other hand, you want to be as open as possible to reduce friction. And also, you're talking about a lot of Israeli citizens where we have freedom of, of worship. So Arab Israelis, you have to have a certain policy for them. And then you want to let some West Bank Muslims in as well. Um, and you'll probably have different restrictions, but it'll be an age-based. And if it's if it's the Palestinians, the Shin Bet will have to do some sort of background check on them. Obviously, Ben Gvir is pushing for much more significant restrictions. The police are, are siding with him as well, according to reports. The Shin Bet wants to be um, a bit more lenient. All Netanyahu's office said last night is he said that there he has there will be balanced restrictions. He did not go uh, any deeper than that. So as of now, we're not sure exactly what those restrictions can be, other than we know that it won't be open to every um, probably young men between, you know, I don't know, 18 and 50 or 60 will have some restrictions. Laser, let's turn our eyes to the north. And this is something we've discussed many times on the podcast before. But in light of the rocket barrages last week, there's, of course, increased talk about the need for war against Hezbollah. And I know you are hesitant to endorse Israel's readiness of war there. Can you tell us a little bit more? Yep. Uh, I think war in the north is inevitable. The question is when. If it happens now, that would be a terrible thing. We haven't achieved any of our goals in Gaza, right? We haven't killed any of the senior leadership. Uh, We haven't gotten back most, yeah, even most of the hostages. Uh, We have not destroyed Hamas as a ruling or military organization. And Netanyahu himself has said this could take up to a year, certainly months. Now let's think about the north. 
Uh, Hezbollah is more powerful and capable than Hamas in every way in terms of the numbers of its soldiers, its rocket capabilities, its ability to inflict damage on the home front, its ability to actually fight uh, maneuvering IDF formations. The ground is much more difficult there because it's it's hills, forests, and very steep valleys. So we'd be fighting uh, a very, very different war. It would mean that we would have to basically draw down very even more the, the war in Gaza. So we would be starting this war that we're not set up to win uh, unequivocally. I think if when there's a war in the north, the IDF is not, it's just not built to, the word is hachra'ah, to achieve battlefield decision to destroy Hezbollah. It's, 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 capable, it's capable of damaging Hezbollah very badly, of killing a lot of its fighters, of degrading its capabilities. But I really don't think uh, the IDF, as it's set up now, is built to, um, to take apart Hezbollah. It is uh, built to take apart Hamas, but these are two different organizations fighting uh, in very different grounds. So what that would mean, we have not, we will have lost in the south, and we will not have won in the north. It's not a good place to be. Oh, and let me add something else. We made the, I think it was a mistake, of evacuating 80,000 people from the north. If this war is going to take much longer than the war in Gaza, so let's call it a year and a half, two years at least, you're not going to return those 80,000 people to their homes, which will be a war zone. You'll probably have to evacuate even more people because the whole north will be um, will be just suffused with rockets. You're going to create this massive internal refugee problem that you cannot solve until you come to some sort of arrangement with Hezbollah uh, through the UN. It'll be you know some imperfect arrangement. It's just not the time to do it. Let me also say something else. The current fighting in the north, which is basically military on military, gives Hezbollah zero advantages. They're not surprising us. They're not able to uh, use their defenses against maneuvering troops, which is an inherent advantage. It's military on military. Our firepower is better. Our intelligence is excellent in Lebanon. You see how we're able to find and target senior leaders there, and not in, in Gaza, by the way. We're absolutely doing wonderful work. We've killed what, 200 of their fighters, and we've pushed a lot of their capabilities back. Uh, we can keep doing this for a long time. It's not perfect. It means that there's fire on the north, but we will have the upper hand as long as this current balance continues. Again, the big problem is is that we've evacuated 80,000 people, and that is going to be a growing political problem. Uh, what do we do about that? And if we agree to this long-term uh, fire fires fight, which will do well on militarily, it doesn't really provide a solution uh, for those evacuees. How could Israel not have evacuated the north? Even just yesterday, there was a direct hit on a home in Shtula, one of the uh, border communities with Lebanon. You would have kept residents there to take the hit? For people, that, I mean, you can leave if you want to, but we never did this in the past. In 2006, right? 1,000 rockets, 900 rockets every day. We didn't evacuate anything by force. We've had other serious uh, rounds of Katusha fire, whether it's from... Uh, Hezbollah, before that from the PLO, we didn't evacuate people by force. Uh, people that wanted to go left, the Druze men <laughs> refused to evacuate. They say, this is our homes. Uh, we're going to stay here and fight. Uh, you cre you've created because you have told people our solution is you are going to leave your homes and we're going to put you up in some hotel room. You've created a problem that you don't have a solution for. 
If you're hoping that there's going to be some sort of diplomatic solution, maybe, but I wouldn't put my money on that. What you're doing now is not going to um, defeat Hezbollah on the battlefield. So you've created this problem for yourself, which uh, a solution is not immediately apparent. Do you see that uh, this evacuation of 80,000 in the north is perceived as a retreat by Hezbollah? Yeah, I think so. I think it's seen as a you know an element of, of a victory for Hezbollah that they're able to create uh, eighty thousand plus um, evacuees within the country. That certainly is not something we're used to seeing here in Israel. And then you know add that to the evacuees from the south. We have a country full of internal refugees. Certainly, you know refugee organizations and all these humanitarian a- agencies don't really care. But it is not. A sign of strength on our part. And I think we have to think uh, long and hard under what conditions do we evacuate people by force. Um, certainly, again, p- giving people the opportunity to choose to go to uh, to safer places, sure, absolutely. But to make it mandatory, um, I think, is, is we haven't thought through fully, especially when we don't know how we're going to get them back. We haven't even discussed the reach of Hezbollah's rocket capability, which is, of course, frightening, frankly. And they can reach way deeper into Israel than Hamas. And this is something that I know in speaking with my friends is what concerns them in terms of a war in the north. Yeah, I mean, there's the issue of the reach. There's the issue of the precision so that they would be able to fire at and target um, strategic facilities, whether it's energy facilities, military facilities, and the like, they would really try to use those precision capabilities to to take a, a high toll on uh, Israel's home front in terms of the way it functions, in terms of the way you know government is able to provide whatever it needs to during a war. And then there's also the number of rockets. The Iron Dome system seems to have been overwhelmed in Ashkelon on October 7th. Um, I imagine that Hezbollah can do much worse. The only bright light over here is that Hamas's rocket fire has really been much less than we've expected. Um, and it turns out that, you know, it was used to, to make, make the IDF drop, you know, uh, kind of go into bunkers and put its heads down to enable the, the main attack that we didn't ex- expect, which was the attack on the ground. Um, so maybe we'll be able to deal with Hezbollah's attacks, uh, rocket attacks better than we think, but it is certainly, it's another level, um, many times more capable, many times larger. And I think that'll be something that, um, the, the home front will feel that much, much more certainly than we did the Hamas attacks. At the same time, we are hearing reports that Iran has directly instructed Hezbollah not to engage Israel in a full-on war. So do you think that if war were to happen, it would be Israel declaring war? Yeah, I I do. I I think the only hope, the only way it happens now is if there's no choice, if Hezbollah hits, let's thank God forbid, a school bus or some, there's some massive civilian toll or hits something to, or basically miscalculates. I don't think Hezbollah wants a war right now. The conditions that are optimal for it to go to war, if it ever wants to, are surprising Israel, like October 7th. Israel's not about to be surprised in the north right now. So if it happens, I think it'll be a miscalculation like the 2006 war was. Hezbollah did not intend to go to war then. It thought it was, um, you know, ambushing, killing a couple of soldiers, kind of stretching what the rules of the game were. And Israel decided to go to war, not in the most ideal way, and it wasn't the most... It wasn't a war that was carried out especially well, but that was an Israeli decision. Hopefully, when the war does happen, I think it has to happen, 
it'll be in a couple years when we finished in in Gaza. We've we've been able to refresh the reserve forces. We've been able to refresh our stockpiles just to reconstruct the army based on our lessons from October seventh, and based on our expectation that the our knowledge that the the recognition that the war on the north will be something different. Uh, it can't be the same army that that's fighting right now in in, in Gaza. Then it'll be done under optimal conditions and hopefully at a time that surprises Hezbollah and takes advantage of our significant capabilities uh, that we have. Laser, thank you so much for all these updates. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Please check out another installment tomorrow. This episode was produced by The Podwaves. If you have any comments or questions about this or any other episode, please drop us an email to podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until tomorrow, shalom. Shalom.